0: Well, uh, thank you for coming. I know it's the end of a long day, and so I appreciate um, you guys sticking around. Uh, Before we progress on, I really need to give a couple thank yous. First, to the Michigan Council on the Social Studies. Um, It's been a great afternoon, and I appreciate the chance to fill in uh, for a speaker uh, this afternoon. As well, I need to offer some thank yous to the Hallenstein Center, to Gleaves and Bryan. Um, The the product of this paper is really an of a lot of different conversations we've had over the last couple weeks and so anything you hear today that you like is probably based on the influence of those two guys, so I, I'm, I'm really appreciative. And finally I need to thank the teachers here. Um, it's my opinion, and I think those of everyone here, that no one hates history or the social studies, they only t- hate the way it's taught. And so that's really been an inspiration to me and as Gleaves said at Calvin I studied um, history and political science as well. And so we're, we're gathered here today to talk about Lincoln in the Middle East. Um, Lincoln Of course, you've heard about all day, really not something very obscure. Probably the most um, books have been written about him uh, as compared to any other president or any other figure. Um, The Middle East, however, it it seems like this may be something that's more obscure. And so I think what we need to do uh, to start this is to talk about um, what we already know about Lincoln and the Middle East or, or diplomatic history. Kind of the crux of this paper is going to talk about um, misconceptions and how we can correct misconceptions about Lincoln's foreign policy and kind of look at a new narrative for how we, how we teach Lincoln's foreign policy and how we teach history of the Middle East. Um, and so the, the, the first question I have is, what do we know about Lincoln's um, dip, uh, diplomatic policy? Outside of the Confederacy, what do we know about Lincoln and perhaps the great powers of Europe? Anyone? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, Brian. That he was trying
1: to keep Europe out of the Civil War, trying to, to
0: keep it a Civil War. Right, and so the, the predominant narrative of Lincoln and, and indeed Secretary of State Seward is that the majority of their of their efforts outside of dealing with wartime policy with the Confederacy was trying to prevent uh, British and French intervention uh, on, on behalf of the Confederacy. We know that the, the British were relying on southern cotton and so a blockade or a stoppage of southern cotton would threaten uh, union relations with the British, as well as the French. Um, so, so secondly, what do, we, what do we know about the Middle East about this time? The 1860s? Uh, commonly, when people study the Middle East, they study a modern history of the Middle East, which starts in 1945 and progresses to the present. Uh, as well, you'll have some texts or some people discuss U.S. relations with the Middle East from 1916 forward. 1916 is... Important because that's the date of the beginning of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Remember, the Ottomans uh, originate from Turkey, and they were allied in World War I. And they were already starting to crumble at that point, but the the Great War really solidified their destruction. And so, um, like I mentioned, commonly our misconception is that U.S. foreign policy with the Arab world, whether it be Muslim North Africa or um, the Middle East, does not start until after World War I. And one of the misconceptions I want to correct this afternoon is that, indeed, U.S. foreign policy with the Middle East has been around since the founding, um, and, and more predominantly um, in the latter half of the 19th century. And, and finally, we a theme in today's talk is going to be American Empire. Typically, we think American Empire of William Mac- McKinley in the Spanish-American War, 1898. We think of um, U.S. going abroad looking for a new frontier internationally, where uh, we've We've um, continued to, on the home front, expand, be a manifest destiny in the railroads westward. Um, we'll hear about Seward purchasing Alaska. Um, but we, we think of this empire and this, this act- activity abroad typically with McKinley, and of course after Teddy Roosevelt and uh, the Rough Rider, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to pr- demonstrate today that American empire really is a product of the consolidation of power after the end of the Civil War politically, economically, and ideologically. So we want to extend this um, discourse about American Empire back to 1865 and not begin in 1898. I think we're missing, well we are indeed missing 40 years of important history if we begin in 1898. And, and, and this idea is not new. This is not an original argument of my own. i um, been influenced by what H.W. Brands has told me and as well, Walter Lefebvre wrote a book called The New Empire. And he Formulates as well as some of his colleagues formulate that empire starts much earlier. But I think uh, this is novel that I'm trying to connect a discourse about diplomatic history uh, with the Middle East going back this far. And so uh, I guess the, the thesis or the argument here is, is as follows. I hope to convince the audience that the United States' interaction with the Middle East helped lay the framework for American empire as early as 1865. And I'll, I guess I'll continue this attempt to success if I can introduce a new narrative about diplomatic history that considers Lincoln's and Seward's relationship with the Middle East as important to understanding America's role as a world superpower during Reconstruction and then um, thereafter. excuse me. And, and, and to start, I want to look at three anecdotes, three stories about America's experience in the Middle East prior to the Civil War. Um, the middle section of this paper is going to look at um, U.S. relations with the Middle East during, during the Civil War in relation to the great powers. But right now we need to look before that. And uh, as Michael Oren, he's a Harvard historian, wrote a book called Power, Faith, and Fantasy, and he looks at U.S. relations with the Middle East since 1776. And so my these stories are a compilation and, and heavily influenced by his work. So I need to pay credence to uh, Michael Warren as well. But the first is we need to go back to 1790. And in the 1790s, uh, there was an Algerian prince named Sidi Ibrahim, who wrote On the Slave Trade, it was a treatise, an article for an American newspaper. And in it, Prince Ibrahim was arguing, it was a polemic, um, an argument for the slaves, which his Barbary pirates has captured. Algeria, of course, was part of the Barbary states, part of North Africa. And since the founding, America was involved in commerce in the region. And uh, Prince Ibrahim evidently had captured many white um, commercial sailors from the states. And he was making an argument as to why these captives belonged in his his possession and why they would make good slaves. So it was an argument for enslaving these white citizens. And it's unique because it it really espoused tons of outrage. You have Americans writing in their version of op-eds, or people are talking about this article, and they're infuriated that American citizens would be enslaved and that they'd be treated as property. And the irony, of course, is as, as anyone that knows anything about Ben Franklin knows that this was actually a satire and a polemic penned by Ben Franklin. He was in his older years, and he wrote under the pseudonym of this Algerian prince. Uh, to show the absurdity of southern landowners and slave owners, um, their arguments of treating, treating African Americans, black, blacks, as slaves. So this is our first antidote, and we see that already since the days of the founding, the United States has an intimate connection to the Middle East, um, and particularly at this time the Barbary States, which remembers North Africa. Uh, the second is Jefferson. Now we know that Jefferson is the first president to have a foreign policy concerned with the outside world, and particularly the Middle East. This is the time when we have the Barbary Wars. And in particular, uh, 1805 is crucial. We have the capturing of the USS Philadelphia, which is outside of, of um, the Barbary states in the Mediterranean waters. It's captured by these pirates, these um, terrorists, if you will. And Jefferson is infuriated, and so he sends US Marines. He sends a contingent of US Marines paired with mercenaries, Arab, Arab countries that were friendly to the states that sent a contingent of troops as well, to recapture the vessel and free the sailors. And this may seem obscure, but to anyone that knows the anthem to the Marine Corps, this is where we get the portion of the, tree, uh, of the of the song that says, To the Shores of Tripoli, the first time the U.S. has engaged the outside world and the Middle East is already 1805. Right, That's six years after the founding of the republic. And it shows um, that even at this time, the United States has an understanding of what their national interest is, and they're willing to protect that militarily. And so we have a... a Barbary Wars, there's actually two set of Barbary Wars that go through Madison as well uh, for a decade or so. Uh, so we, we have Ben Franklin writing this this satire, we have Thomas Jefferson sending Marines overseas and finally we need to look at 1821, right, this is the presidency of Andrew Jackson and it's important because it takes place in an exchange between the Greeks and the Ottomans right, it may, it may seem silly to consider Greece part of the Middle East or even the Balkans but you have to remember, at this time, the Ottoman Empire stretched throughout this region we know as the Middle East. There is no Middle East until after World War One, when these countries um, have um, either are colonialized by the British or France or later declared independence. <coughs> but at this time, we have the Ottoman Empire. It stretches from Baghdad and, and, and Arab Iraq all the way up into the Balkans um, and in Greece, and then all the way west to Morocco. So it's this great th- swath of, of, of territory and 1821 is essential because we have the Greeks rebelling for the first time against the Ottomans. This is the beginning of the Ottoman decline. Remember Nicholas I of Russia um, during the Crimean War was the first to say that the Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe. He was decrepit and he was, he was slowly breaking apart. And this Greek rebellion is, is the first is the first instance of this. It's also important because uh, for those of you that are familiar with Sam Huntington's argument in the clash of civilizations, this area of the Balkans that connects Greece and and Kosovo and Albania and Bosnia with Turkey is one of these civilizational fault lines. Um, Huntington argues that it's one of these areas where because of the cultural, religious, economic, political differences, there's a natural prone tendency to conflict. And we see this as early as 1821. And you have the Greeks um, rebelling against the Ottomans. And American statesmen love this. They create a discourse of these, the Greeks, right, the founders of democracy, and Christians, they're Orthodox for the most part. Some are Catholic, but primarily Orthodox. They're rebelling against these <laughs> these Muslim rights. So they're pagan, they're autocratic, and um, it's just perfect discourse for American statesmen. Most people don't know that our political heroes, Lincoln's political heroes, certainly Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, are in the Congress promoting or proposing rather military intervention in Greece. They want to send our warships to the port of Piraeus, there in the Aegean Sea to aid the Greeks in rebelling against the, the Ottomans, which is which is just amazing. And there's a perfect quote from the Frontier General, our future President William Henry Harrison. And Harrison is quoted as saying, humanity, policy, religion, all demand it. The Star Spangled Banner must wave above the Aegean. As early as 1821, we see that Americans agreed with notions of protecting and spreading democratic freedom abroad. This, this discourse that we think is either an evil construction of the Bush administration, or perhaps Reagan, or before that, really exists as early as the 1820s. So now we see these three antidotes are all important. They show that we were interested in protecting our national interest abroad. We were also uh, interested in primarily with defining our own sense of freedom, but also protecting that, especially to our, our kinsmen, the Greeks, who are the founders of democracy back um, in antiquity. So we have these tastes and these stories and anecdotes about America's experience. Now we need to look at uh, Lincoln's foreign policy with the Middle East, and uh, I'm going to start with the Ottoman Empire because uh, it was based right. Its headquarters was in Con- Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and that's where the centralization of power of the whole empire was. In this this elegant bureaucracy of, of you have statesmen, military rulers, and administrators for the whole empire. And one of the the, the crucial diplomatic victories that we often don't think about is Seward. In 1861, the beginning of the war, goes to the Ottoman port, the Ottoman government, and secures Ottoman neutrality in the conflict. Um, We often don't think about that. We think of the neutrality of the Brits and the French, but the Ottomans were were a world power, even if they were slowly starting to decline. Um, So we see that the Turks, they have sympathy for rebellion at home with the Greeks, Uh, with their experience with the Greeks now we need to go back and and, and remember that the U.S. did not send any military aid Um, it was more of an ideological connection we never sent troops there Um, but the Turks have a native experience of this rebellion and internal division at home and in this exchange between the Sultan of of, um, the Ottoman Empire and Lincoln the Sultan says "You know, we hope that your conflict resolves itself with the Union still intact so you you have Ottoman sympathy Um, You also have the renewing of a commercial treaty in 1863. This actually uh, renews our uh, trading relations that had happened during Andrew Jackson's administration in the 1820s with the Ottoman. It renews this, and there's an essential clause as well that they will capture and prosecute Confederate privateers, which shows that outside of the continental United States we have these naval encounters with the Union and the Confederacy, more precisely these Confederate pirate ships that would capture Union commercial interests. And so we have, a, we have first a support of Ottoman neutrality in the conflict, and then we have a promise that they'll capture Confederate uh, vessels. Outside of Constantinople, we also have the U.S. engaging the Barbary states. Uh, we have an example of the Trent Affair. It's kind of this Middle East or, or Arab version of the Trent Affair. In 1862, we have two sailors from a Confederate vessel, a privateering ship, land in Tangier in modern-day Algeria to do some sightseeing. Um, before returning back to Gibraltar to restock their ship and continue their marauding. They stop, and the U.S. consulate there, led by a, an ambassador or a, a, a statesman by the name of James DeLong, hears about these Confederate rebels landing in Tangier and immediately sends out a contingent to arrest them. And he's, in, he's furious that these Confederates can have free reign in, in a town that has a, has a Union or a United States consulate. And uh, what's, what's interesting about this diplomatic exchange is that it infuriated the French. At this time, we see with Napoleon III and the French bureaucracy, we see them um, interested in imperialism in North Africa. And so they had their hand already in North Africa, even though technically they were, the Barbary states were part of the Ottoman Empire. And so we have the French saying, you know, this is the, exactly the same as the Trinevere, which happened only six months before. You're, you're arresting uh, Confederate diplomats in neutral territory. You can't do that. And so Lincoln ends up having to back down, and he releases these two sailors to prevent French allegiance with the Confederacy over this Trent-like affair um, in North Africa. And finally, uh, what's interesting is the United States also had a unique foreign policy with Egypt, who was also a part of the Ottoman Empire but was autonomous. The French in the early part of the 19th century invaded Egypt and put a colonial stakehold in that as well, And U.S. relations with Egypt were thus tied in with foreign policy to the great powers, primarily Britain and and, uh, and France. During the Union blockade in the beginning of the war, there was an economic slump for the South. They can't get out their cotton exports, and this has a direct impact with the British, who relied overwhelmingly on cotton exports to run their textiles. They had an economy based on agrarian imports from the South, and with that gone, there's a real threat that the British would either destroy the blockade or ally themselves with the Confederacy to get access to this cotton. Interestingly, though, with um, what happens in Egypt is they're already growing cotton and the Union encourages them to increase their exports. So from 1861 to 1865, we have a 350% increase in cotton exports to the UK, um, from 60 million pounds in 1861 to 274 million pounds. So the British now... Uh, as well as mainland Europe have access to a new sources of cotton. So economically they're not dependent on a confederacy for agricultural exports. We, so once again we see the United States is, with their foreign policy with the Middle East is tied um, to the great powers. On the French side, uh, the arid viceroys, these rulers who were allegiant, uh, pledged allegiance to the Ottomans but were also influenced by the French. Um, and there's an in- interesting encounter there as well we have um, Napoleon III invading Mexico, right in the 1860s, uh, 1863. He's looking at establishing a new empire, so he sends the French troops there and is going to make a territorial stake in Mexico. And really, Lincoln and Seward's hands are tied at this point to be able to deal with that. Uh, interestingly enough, most people don't know that there are 500 Egyptian troops on. It's the first time we've had um, Muslim. Arab soldiers in- invade, if you will, the United States, and they were warring or a- allied with the French, and Napoleon loved this because he thought that these, they were Sudanese, but they were a, par- a part of the Egyptian Egyptian area, and he thought that they would be um, resistant to the heat of Mexico, and they'd also be resistant to yellow fever, and ironically enough, most of them did not die in combat, but died of yellow fever. Um... And so, once again, we have this kind of schizophrenic relationship with the U.S. and Egypt, whereas we are supporting their cotton exports, and that secures British neutrality, but the Egyptians send troops to North America, and so that, that uh, tr- um, puts in danger our relationship with the French. Uh, and finally, th- we have an, an, an interesting caveat as well with Protestant missionaries. Uh, most people don't study the Middle East during the Civil War because, frankly, we didn't really have a diplomatic presence outside of major cities like Constantinople, Tangier, um, Cairo. We probably only had a few dozen, du- um, a few hundred rather, statesmen uh, in the Middle East. But what we did have is hundreds of Protestant Christian missionaries. And Michael Orr makes the point that the overwhelming majority of these missionaries were allied to the Union because of their abolitionist sympathies. So we have this kind of de facto diplomatic core of these missionaries influencing local populations with American civil religion, and, um, and so in addition to um, this diplomatic presence, we have these missionaries. And so we already have this ideological influence of, um, of this discourse I mentioned. So w- we've seen early U.S. encounters with the Middle East. Um, I think they're significant. They're more than just entertaining stories, even though they are certainly that. We've seen U.S. encounters with the Middle East during the war, um, seemingly obscure on the surface, but more important because, because rather they're tied diplomatically to the great powers are our biggest concerns, the French and the British. Now we need to look at how these characteristically change after the war. And I make the argument that um, the conclusion of the Civil War saw a consolidation of power ideologically, politically, and economically. And this can be contentious, so I want to be modest with my with my argument, and I want to stay, state it in, in, in humble claims and, and stick to some basic facts and not really elaborate. But the first is, ideologically, you have the defeat of slave labor and the triumph of a free labor ideology. right? Um, the chief document of this is, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation, but also the Gettysburg Address where Lincoln brilliantly states in a few paragraphs that there's going to be a new birth of freedom. And he was referring specifically, he says, a new birth of freedom for the United States. But if we look to Lincoln's um, understanding of the Declaration, we can understand that this was broader than, ju- than just the United States. And Gary Wells makes a great point of this in the introduction to his book on the Declaration And he quotes Lincoln. Lincoln says that the Declaration gave liberty not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future things. It was that which gave promise that in due time the weights would be lifted from the shoulders of all men and that all should have an equal chance. And so Wills as well as some other Lincoln scholars make the argument that Lincoln's understanding of the Declaration was global. And thus um, his idea of a new birth of freedom was global. And we're going to see an ideological influence that only comes about after the consolidation and after Lincoln's kind of uh, ideological discourse of, of freedom as a global entity and not just something peculiar to the United States. What's important in, in, in this realm is that we have a, an extension of American exceptionalism. It's a major theme that diplomatic historians talk about: the idea that the United States was given a God uh, was was given a God-given mandate um, to spread freedom to the world, and that we're an exceptional or unique experiment where God ordained, right, the city on the hill, and this ties into this idea of new birth of freedom because if if Lincoln and Seward and, the Union can overcome internal division at home and restore a new birth of freedom. Why can't we do that abroad? Why is it only a matter of, of the continental United States, of a, of a reunification of North and South, East and West? Why can't it be abroad? So I think that's an important ideological theme that we need to apply to the Middle East. And I'll go into why in a little bit. Um, politically, we have the United States able to engage the world at large as one. Uh, before we had the United States are, now it's the United States is. or a single entity. The Amnesty Proclamation of 1868 repatriated many Confederates back into the Union. Uh, interestingly enough, Lee never uh, received a pardon or became a full citizen again. He was never, he was never tried for his crimes, but it wasn't until the uh, 1960s with a, a Senate resolution that Lee received his citizenship. Um, you also have p- power consolidating in the form of the Republican Party. You have Republican dominance for the next 50 years. You have Republicans dominating all the southern governorships. Um, So you have political consolidation at the expense of the Democratic Party in the South. It's kind of an irony. Uh, Economically, it's important. Uh, Walter McDougall, who's a diplomatic historian, argues that the defeat of the Confederacy removed the last impediment to the maturation of a continental superstate with a booming population, industry, agriculture, and trade. This is known as the Beard Hacker thesis, that the Civil War spurred economic production, and, that, and that's contentious, so I don't. it's really not in my interest and I'm not equipped to defend that thesis, but rather to say that with the conclusion of the Civil War, um, and this is universally agreed upon, that the, America was transformed from an agrarian, slave-based system to a booming industrial economy. Most importantly, and this is the introduction of assembly line production. You have American exports, that are now more lucrative and attractive because we can finish um, competitive exports at a quicker rate through assembly lines and industry. Um, One of the... uh, Another irony, kind of this early examples of the American... uh, the military industrial complex is that with the end of the Civil War, there's a a huge drop-off for demand in military equipment. So we have assembly lines producing all these rifles and military equipment, but we no longer have any domestic market. So we have a new... um, Boost in, in, in an interest in trade abroad. And uh, communications. We have the railroad and the telegraph. They allow us to expand westward under the mandate of Manifest Destiny 50 years before um, Frederick Jackson Turner and the frontier thesis. right? That comes about at the end of the 19th century. But even in 1865, we have the completion of the first continental, transcontinental railroad, and we have people headed west. They can um, they can uh, arrive, arrive in the west quicker than before. They can communicate. So even before uh, we have our frontier settled at home. We're looking abroad. And this is, this is most important in the fact that in 1867, Seward buys Alaska from the Russians, kind of the first impulse or inkling of American empire um, in the Johnson administration when Lincoln buys it from the Russians for two cents an acre. That's cheaper than what we got the Louisiana purchase for. Um, and finally, uh, we, we tend to forget that we have... American discovery of oil in 1863 in Pennsylvania. We have a new lucrative export in the form of kerosene. So we have all these economic incentives, we have a consolidation of economic power, and now we're ready to look overseas with our excess arms, our, our kerosene and petroleum products, as well as other finished goods. And now, I guess finally, kind of the, the crux of the paper is looking at how U.S. diplomatic r- relations with the Middle East fundamentally change in light of this consolidation of power. Walter Zimmerman says that the record of American statecraft after the Civil War shows a persistent effort to increase influence and expand territory beyond the continental boundaries of the U.S. The U.S. is a perfect case study for this. Ideologically, we have missionaries beginning to settle and having influence. By 1866, they found Syrian Protestant College under Dr. Daniel Bliss, who in the midst of this blazing Civil War is able to get a grant from New York State to start a university and gets private philanthropy. Uh, He got a majority of his money from a relative of Eleanor Roosevelt that that had these Christian ambitions and decided to fund this college. So in 1866, you have the Syrian Protestant College, which is now the most prominent educational institution in the Middle East, and it's the American University at Beirut. Um, at, At a time when American universities barely got a dozen students because all these men were fighting the Civil War, Syrian Protestant College had a medical school open. And had an opening class of, of of a little over a dozen people, educating native Arabs in American discourse, right? And so you have this new birth of freedom educationally. Uh, you have also the Americans begin to colonize Palestine. You have this idea of Jewish restorationism. Now it's referred to as Christian Zionism, that every good Christian has a mandate from God to restore the Jews to Palestine because that an issue in the Second Coming. So we have a, a fundamentalist Mormon missionary by the name of George Adams who subsequently changes his name to George Washington, Joshua Adams, and takes 156 missionaries to settle Palestine. At the behest of the State Department, Seward was able to convince the Ottoman sultan to give them a grant of land in Jaffa, which is in modern-day Palestine. And so you have this marriage of the diplomatic under Seward and the religious under Adams it it, it creates a potent ideological mix. And finally... um, we have American advisors going to Egypt. We often don't hear about this, but at the conclusion of the war, and in the, the 10 years during Reconstruction, we have over 50 U.S. soldiers going to advise and train the Egyptian military. Um, Saeed Pasha, or Pasha Ishmael, was the viceroy, and this was in the middle of the French, building the Suez Canal. And so he had a, a vision to modernize the Egyptian army to protect this great commercial asset. And the U.S., we were, really uh, weren't involved in investing in the canal. We were hesitant to be um, uh, colonializers and imperializers in the region, but we did send troops over there. And they had a huge ideological impact, um, not only in in military training, but they established schools. So they train um, soldiers in civil religion, of ideas of patriotism, discipline, military prowess, and they also train military, the families, the women and children of military officers. And as a result, we see literacy rates skyrocket, during the 1860s and 70s in Egypt because of these these American advisors. So we see there's this, this potent ideological influence through the missionaries, um, primarily the missionaries, but also kind of the diplomatic and the military. Politically, we have um, new examples of, of force posturing. We have a USS Ticonderoga, which is this big steamship. First goes through the Dardanelles, which was a kind of a neutral zone to military uh, vessels. and It lands in Constantinople. Edward Joy Morris, who was the consul... The consul leader at the time was able to negotiate this with the Ottomans. And also we see in the next 10 years, it is the first military ship of the United States to go to the Persian Gulf. So we have American uh, power projection, right as the British Empire, British naval prowess in the Mediterranean is scaling down. We have the United States picking up the mantle and sending troops, or excuse me, and sending the, naval, uh, the Navy abroad. Um, we also have at the conclusion of the Civil War, Seward, uh, able to kick Napoleon out of Mexico. Uh, now that the Civil War is complete, they're saying you know, this is completely out of line. And specifically, we, uh, there's an interesting interchange in which Seward sends a message to the consul in Alexandria. And he says, you know, tell this to the Viceroy, that what the Pasha has done in Mexico at the request of another power, the United States might easily do in Egypt at the request of some friendly power. This is the first time since the Barbary Wars that Seward or the United States State Department is threatening invasion to Egypt. So not only we, we're—it's it's this kind of ironic twist of fate, or this irony of our policy. That we're afraid to be imperializers. We're afraid to be involved in the Suez Canal. Um, we're afraid to snatch up territory that from the um, uh, eroding Ottoman Empire. But we're easily—we're excited to to spread military might through the navy, and we're almost excited to send troops to Egypt to keep them in line. Which is, I think, it, it may come across as obscure. But I think it's really interesting in showing this this political consolidation as well. It's really inconsistent and it's a step farther than what we see during the Civil War and before. And then finally, um, in in terms of economic interests, we have a treaty at Cape Spartal in May of 1865. Cape Spartal, they built a lighthouse there. It's right at the Strait of Gibraltar. It's key to economic interests because it helps these, these ships and vessels in the Atlantic come into port in North Africa. This is the first multilateral international treaty that the United States signs with the other great powers. So it signs it with the Russians, with the British and with the French, and once again, we see that they're hesitant to be imperialist, but they're not afraid to cooperate with imperial powers to commit to protect, rather, commercial interests economically. Like I mentioned before, we have oil exports to the Middle East. Uh, Fifty years before um, the Standard Oil Company finds oil deposits in the Middle East, oil from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas becomes a chief export to Syria and the Levant. So it's this lucrative lucrative export, and it shows, even in the midst of these mercantilists, these protectionist economic policy, that we're really looking globally. Maybe the first signs of economic globalization, uh, if you will. Also, arms. Uh, We have the U.S. selling all of its excess arms and older warships um, to the Turks. As early as 1864, the Turks required uh, buying, you know, old Navy warships—we give them the blueprints, but we can't make them because we're still in the middle of the Civil War. But in 1867, we see military, um, or rather, the Naval Secretary Gordon Wells, offer to sell all these excess ships. Also, we see the, um, the CEOs or the, the corporate leaders of Remington, Winchester, and Colt—all these arms manufacturers—look to international markets because we no longer have domestic desire. We're, our, our Civil War has been quelled, so economically, we have a new, a new. Boost and we have this, this first hint at globalization with petroleum and with arms. How ironic is that that we were a chief exporter and now we're the chief importer of oil from the Middle East, and in a lot of ways we're held captive to that. And so in, in conclusion, I think that I've, I've hopefully demonstrated that the United States has a complex diplomatic history with the region, right? U.S. foreign policy with the Middle East does not start in 1965 or 1916, excuse me or 1945. It starts in 1790 with Ben Franklin and our experience with the Algerians. It starts with the Greek Civil War and diplomatic tension with the Ottomans. And it starts with the Civil War as we start to engage the Ottomans as well. And and we see primarily that U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East was by proxy U.S. foreign policy (coughs) with the great powers. Anything we did within the Ottoman Empire, the Barbary States, or Egypt had a direct impact on Britain and France. Cotton exports like we talked about, the French... Egyptians sending uh, contingent of troops with the French in Mexico. Every diplomatic maneuvering we had, we had to also um, consider our relationship with the great powers. So I, I would like to see, and, and, and hopefully diplomatic historians will consider relations with the Ottoman Empires as important as relations with the British and the French, because they're all intricately tied. Uh, I guess to conclude, I want to read a portion of a speech that President Bush gave in November 2003 to the National Endowment of Democracy. And, and, and with this speech, I'm trying to draw a contemporary uh, conclusion and, and a contemporary tie, but in no way am I really suggesting that I think Lincoln or Seward or any of these people shared any similarities with Bush more than maybe this universal idea of the Declaration. Bush concludes to these, uh, this think tank in D.C. He says, In many nations of the Middle East, countries of great strategic importance, democracy has not yet taken root. And the question, And this question arises, are the people of the Middle East somehow beyond the reach of liberty? Are millions of men and women and children condemned by history or culture to live in despotism? I, for one, do not believe it. I believe every person has the ability and the right to be free. So thanks so much. Any questions? Yeah.
2: First of all, thank you very much for such path research and such interesting uh, ideas that you pull together in your paper. In your opinion, Austin, what is the most consequential action from this period? If you look at the long view of American history, all the way into the post-1945, what era, is the most consequential action in this period that you focused on for the future?
0: Um, I think during Reconstruction, it would have to be U.S. projection of power. Um, navally. Right? We see that warships going through the Dardanelles to Constantinople. We see a, a steamship in 1879 going to the Persian Gulf. Before that, we remember even during the Jackson administration, Quincy Adams is the one that says in front of the Congress, we're not going abroad for monsters to destroy. And even yet we kind of have the schizophrenic or ironic notion that we want to support the Greeks and the, the founders of democracy, but we also don't want to do this. But we see that um, very consistently with this consolidated effort, we're sending military forces overseas advising, and with the Navy in in the Mediterranean. So I think that really sets the stage for our involvement ideologically and diplomatically in the future. We're we're much more robust. Uh, I think before the Civil War, because of the turmoil on the home front, we couldn't approach the world as as, as a unified entity, and we really didn't have that same capacity. But we really see a robust interference. And, And that's where we get this connection of American empire starting in 1865. We have a consolidation of power in the Middle East, um, diplomatically, politically, ideologically, economically, uh, we have a, a force projection which is really unprecedented. I think before that, even with the with the the Barbary Wars. Yeah.
2: Well, as a follow up, I would ask: Are is the Arab world, the Muslim world, aware of this history? Do you have any evidence of that?
0: Uh, I'm sure the Egyptians do. Uh, the Egyptians have had a, a unique history right after. These vo- after the Ottoman Empire falls, we have the British. And so they have a very a keen keen sense of their own colonial past. Um, but really, it, and another irony is that Americans are really are really respected in Egypt because they turned to us and we were not colonialists. We didn't imperialize the reason, at least in any formal sense. The reality is we did ideologically, militarily, even diplomatically. But they have, a, at least the Egyptians have a keen sense that we were loyal to them in the face of these, these Brits that come in and colonialize for 40 years. The French, that their American partners, were um, were humble in that, and, and and were not colonial invaders. So they, I think, the Egyptians look friendly to that. I mean, and the U.S. has always had a pretty strong relationship with the Turks. And so I, I'm not sure that the extent that they do, and I'm I'm sure that Americans, uh, students of American diplomatic history, don't know as well
1: idea the, the new birth of freedom abroad and Lincoln, Lincoln looking abroad and I see a lot of evidence in his take on the Declaration of Independence as he as uh, and also his admiration for Thomas Jefferson who sent the Barbary Pirates or, I mean, sent, sent the Marines to the Barbary Pirates and then Henry Clay and Daniel Webster who wanted to engage in, in Greece um, but I'm, I'm also thinking about Lincoln's take on the Mexican War and his opposition to Polk and, and he looked at it as a land grab and as a stretch for, for military glory. Um, so I guess I guess what I'm wondering is is in your research, did you see this more as Lincoln's take, or is this Lincoln working for the auspices of Seward, Seward's office? How much of it is seward and how much is, is Lincoln?
0: Well, I, I think the majority of it is seward and also implications of Lincoln's thinking. Right, with Polk with the famous spot resolution, he was totally against Polk's war with Mexico. And so the Whig idea of this anti-interventionism, I guess, was strong in Lincoln. And so really, um, I think this is more a the ramifications of, of Lincoln's thinking. Lincoln didn't really think much of the Middle East. I think the only quote we have about him actually talking about the Middle East is his desire to go to the Holy Land. He tells Mary Todd, um, or Mary at Fort Steed, right before his death, that he'd really like to go to the Holy Land. And that really wasn't uncommon at the time. I don't really think that Lincoln... Consciously was thinking about a new birth of freedom internationally, but I think Seward picked up on it and, and Seward's own unique history shows that he was one of the earlier uh, imperialists, I think, or the empire builders and they used this rhetoric, and so Lincoln either uh, subconsciously or the ramifications of this thinking was more dangerous than I guess he would have realized um, does, does that answer your question?
1: That
0: no, it does Alright, well thanks so much
2: thank you very much once again for, I think, a pathbreaking piece of scholarship, and we look forward to more of your work in the future. Well, I want to thank this audience, and I want to uh, thank the, uh, the Michigan Council for Social Studies for partnering with us to bring the Lincoln Lecture Series to you. This is something I don't get to do very often, but before we sign off, um, I want to thank NGTV for covering us, and I also want to thank the staff at the Hallstein Center. You guys do a lot of work behind the scenes, but I don't get to thank you very often for in public, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank the Associate Director of the Hauenstein Center, Brian Flanagan. I'd like to thank Kathy Brent. I'd like to thank Mandy Byrd. I'd like to thank our photographer, Heather Landis. I'd like to thank our research assistant, Austin Duppy. And then we have some wonderful interns, Tavika Bell, Kara Tanja. All of you do a great job and help the Hellenstein Center go, and I thank you very much and keep doing a great job. Well, So long for now. Bye.